Welcome to the Claremont County Public Library's Book Lovers Podcast. I'm your host, Christine, and I am joined today by Youth Service Librarian Kara and Collection Development Librarian Stacy. We've been talking about the Newberry Award, and today during this episode, Stacy's going to share some fun Newberry trivia, and we're going to discuss a few more of our favorite Newberry books from the past. Remember that show notes with links to all of the titles we talk about is available at ClaremontLibrary.com. And Stacy, I'm going to turn it over to you. What fun trivia do you have for us today? Okay, well, I feel like we're just on our fourth hour talking about the Newberry. There's so much to say about it. And there's so much that like aren't even saying about it because there's, well, obviously a 100 year history. And then there's just so much that goes into it. We're doing all these podcasts because we are getting ready for 2022 marks the 100th anniversary of the Newberry Awards, which is awesome. So we've talked a little bit about the history of the medal. We've talked a little bit about like how it came to be, about the committees that are formed every year, the Newberry Committee that's formed and the criteria that they've used. So if you're interested in all of that, you can check out our other podcasts. But I'm going to talk a little bit about John Newberry, who the award is named after. And then I'll just do a couple of quick little bits of trivia. So John Newberry, and that is spelled with just one R, not two, just one, not a berry, like you're going to eat a strawberry. And that's how I have to remember it because before... We got so in-depth about Newberry, I would always have to look up and see, now that's just one R, right? But I'm going to remember from now on. That's just one R. He, in his time, was considered the father of children's literature, not because he was the first to publish children's books, because he wasn't, but he was the first to turn them into a truly profitable business. In mid-18th century England, a new and growing middle class had money to spend on their children. And Newberry gave them something to spend it on. So beginning in 1744, he published about 100 storybooks for children, plus magazines and what they called ABC books, which we would just call alphabet books today. And he therefore became the leading children's publisher of his time. So the Newberry Award didn't come to fruition for more than 175 years after Newberry. And that is when Publishers Weekly editor Frederick Melcher suggested that the American Library Association create an annual award for the most distinguished contribution to American literature for children. And they loved the idea. So Frederick Melcher asked that it be named for Newberry, who was an Englishman that actually never set foot in America, which I find so interesting that The award is named after him, and it is limited to American residents. You have to live in the country at least, is it six months out of the year? Thank you, Kara. Yes, (laughs) she knows all that great history. So I find that so interesting. You can't be English and live in England and have published a book, even though the, the award was named after an Englishman. So anyway, the first book that John Newberry authored for children was called A Pretty Little Pocketbook. And it consisted of simple rhymes for each of the letters of the alphabet. And to market the book to children of the day, the book came with kind of like a toy or a little keepsake. I find this really funny, but you have to remember it was the mid 1700s. So the book 
either came with a ball for a boy or a pin cushion for a girl. Yes, you're pulling the same types of faces that I would pull and that children of today would pull. Actually, I mean, a ball is not is not a bad gift still, I guess, for a boy or a girl. But a pin cushion, I think that would be like a hard no from parents. They'd be like, no, please don't give my child something they can stick needles into. <laughs> but again, mid-1700s, a pin cushion for a girl. I thought that was a fun little of history there. So that is just a tiny little snippet of history about John Newberry that I found very interesting. So three quick little trivia facts that you can pull out of your pocket if you're ever playing trivia at a restaurant or something, and they happen to ask you about Newberry award questions. So Kara mentioned this one in our last Newberry when she talked about Laura Ingalls Wilder. So if you don't know, she authored the Little House on the Prairie series, and she received five Newberry awards, but never the top medal. So she has received five Newberry honors, or in her time, they were referred to as runners up, but not the medal. She never won the Newberry medal, which I found very interesting. There are six authors who have won two medals each, two that our listeners and readers probably know by name. One is Kate DiCamillo, and she won for The Tale of Despero in 2004 and Flora and Ulysses in 2014. And the other is Lois Lowry, who won for Number the Stars in 1990 and The Giver in 1994. And then my last little piece of trivia is my favorite that I came across. And that is of the 100 Newberry medals that have been awarded since 1922, two thirds, so 66 of them have gone to women, which is awesome. (laughs) So if you think about 100 years ago, you know, you were thinking about the year like 1919 after women won the right to vote or that was 1920. I'm like, I'm getting my dates mixed up. I'm sorry. It was right around that time. You know, women weren't truly acknowledged for a lot of their accomplishments. So within the past 100 years, to have the most distinguished book for American literature for children to go two-thirds to women, that's awesome. So yay! All right, we're going to jump into talking about more of our favorite or classic personal best Newbery medal winners or honors. And I think Kara is going to get us started with her first pick. And mine are both by women. I don't know about you, Stacey. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting here wondering, I mean, talking about the history of it, you'd know that the committees were made up of librarians and teachers, which are generally professions that are made up mostly of women. So that might have had something to do with it as the people who were picking the books as well. But that's interesting. I'd never heard that. So my first book is The One and Only Ivan by Catherine Applegate. And this one is a newer medal winner. So both of mine are medal winners today. In our last podcast, both of mine were honor books, but these are the true medal winners. Both of them I'm very excited to talk about. So this one won the medal in 2013. It's hard to believe that it's been that long. (laughs) So it was published in 2012, but it's definitely, I think, only gained in popularity since then. I know a lot of schools use it for assignment, which I really give them kudos for picking a newer book that's really engaging and interesting 
interesting to kids. And then of course, Disney just came out with a movie for it a couple of years ago. It's only, I think, cementing its place in history even further. If you're not familiar with the story, it's about Ivan the gorilla. It's based on a true story. So he was a gorilla that was raised by humans and ended up at a roadside mall where he was an attraction there. But it's written from his perspective in this book. So, you know, anthropomorphized in this case, but he really was a real gorilla. And so in this story, he has friends that live at the mall with him. It's an elephant named Stella and then Bob, who's a stray dog. And the story's turning point comes when Ruby, who's the other animal on the cover, comes to the mall and she's a baby elephant who's been taken away from her family. And it kind of makes Ivan realize how bad their conditions are and makes him want something better for Ruby's. He's trying to save the animals that are living there at the mall. So the real Ivan was moved to Zoo Atlanta after people petitioned for him to be moved out of his conditions at the mall. And so he lived there until August 2012. So right around when the story was written is when he passed away. And what I love about it is the way that Catherine Applegate is able to portray his voice through her really spare text. If you open the book up and look at it, there's a lot of white space. This is the large print version. So it's a little bit harder to tell, but there's a ton of white space around the text. And I read an interview with her where she talked about how she was actually a struggling reader as a kid. So she really identifies with reluctant readers and understands how valuable this white space is to them to be able to still feel like they're reading a true chapter book, you know, and feel like they're a real reader, even if they might be struggling. And then of course, the illustrations are just fantastic in this. There's one of of Ivan's art with his handprint. So they're just kind of sprinkled throughout, but they're just lovely illustrations of the animals and, and what's going on with the story. So I would say that this book is important to me professionally, a little bit more than personally. I remember reading it kind of at the start of my career as a librarian and just loving the book and book talking it to kids when we were going out to promote summer reading to schools. So this was the summer that it was published before it was awarded the Newbery. And I actually remember saying to a packed cafeteria full of elementary school kids that I thought it was going to win the Newbery Medal that coming year. And it actually came true, which is the only time my Newbery prediction has ever been right <laughs> for a medal winner. So that was pretty exciting for me. And then I actually had the honor of attending the Newberry Banquet where Catherine Applegate accepted the medal for the one and only Ivan and gave her acceptance speech, which was just a once in a lifetime experience. If you ever get the chance to go to a Newberry Banquet, if you're ever in the city where it's being hosted, I would highly recommend it. Something that some people don't know is you actually don't have to pay the, the ticket price to get in, which I did just to have the full experience. Uh, it was a little bit pricey, but you can actually just go in and stand in the back and not be at one of the tables, but you can still attend for free and hear the speeches. But they do publish the speeches afterwards, so you can read that. So I would definitely recommend looking up her speech. It's just full of a lot of humor and was given in a very down-to-earth way. So I really admire her as an author, and I'm looking forward to seeing She has a book out this year. I haven't read it yet, but um, I always look forward to seeing what Newberry authors come out with next. That's really interesting, Kara. I didn't know that the public could go to the banquets now still, so that's really neat. And I agree it's a great book. Definitely a well-deserved honor. I think her new one is sort of along the same lines of like kind of animal conservation, awareness of human impact on the animal world. I also loved the one and only Island Ivan. It made me cry. So if you're picking it up for the first time, just be aware that it is a tearjerker for sure, but it's ultimately a heartwarming, uplifting book. 
Good choice. See, you have our next title for us. Yes, I have Scary Stories for Young Foxes by Christian McKay Hyde. And this is a newer book as well. Quite new, actually. It won a Newbery Honor in 2020. So it was published just a couple years ago, 2019. And this was just kind of out of left field for me, at least personally. I didn't read this until after it won one of the honors in 2020 because it just really wasn't on my radar. Looking back, it got great reviews, but not being a huge middle grade reader myself, it just wasn't something that caught my attention. Even though when I was a youth librarian, I knew that children, especially in mid-elementary up through middle school, just clamor for the scariest book possible. We would have kids come in and say, give me the scariest book you have. And this is definitely one of those where I'd be like, are you sure that you actually want a scary book? That is still appropriate for their age. Because this one was quite scary, I thought. Just look at that cover. Look at that fox there on the cover. The illustrations throughout were just fantastic, in my opinion. But basically, this story is a set of interconnected stories with breaks in between that focus on an old vixen who is a storyteller and these seven kits who are lured from their den with the promise of being scared by this storyteller vixen here. So it starts out with these seven fox leaving their den. They had heard from their mother that there's an old vixen who lives in her own den and if you go there, that she will just scare their little tails off with different stories. And she does. She starts in on her story. And then after each story, one of the seven little foxes gets too scared and then runs back home. So I know, very sweet. The interconnected stories focus on two different foxes from two different litters. And one is a little female fox named Mia. And another is a little male fox named Yuli. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's U-L-Y. So I'm going to say Yuli. And they encounter dangers from predators, humans, and other foxes. And the two of them, Mia and Yuli, eventually meet in the stories. And their separate stories are, in my opinion, just expertly woven together to create one story that is just very scary good. And I do actually mean scary, that both the text and the illustrations do not shy away from disease, dismemberment, and even death. So I'll show you a spread where here's, oh gosh, this is the worst one in my opinion. It's House of Tricks. It will ruin Beatrix Potter for you. Cage and mean old Beatrix Potter getting ready to skin it alive. You know, it's not for kids who say they want to be scared, but they really don't want to be scared. In my opinion, it was it was pretty scary. So I think perfect for fans of Grimm's fairy tales or the series Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, and even readers of Neil Gaiman. So a companion book called Scary Stories for Young Foxes, The City, was just published this past August. And that story is set several years after this original one with a different group of main characters. And this time they face dangers in an urban setting. But this one is all about foxes in the forest. I love it because it's kind of an unusual pick for the Newberry. We talked about in past podcasts where the committees tend to choose historical fiction 
fiction and realistic fiction that, in my opinion, don't always have great reader appeal, especially for the age that they're written for. I think they get a lot of accolades from adults and librarians who are like, yes, this is the most distinguished book for children. But children are like, eh, give me something scary. (laughs) So I love that this fits that, but it was also beautifully written, expertly written. And I think the committee did a great honor that year and and chose a good horror story for one of the honor titles. It sounds, and the picture is is a little disturbing, a little scary. So I think kids that want to be scared will enjoy that book. So uh, the story that features Beatrix Potter was based a little bit on her life. Obviously she wrote wonderful animal stories and I I don't want to name the time frame because I can't say when she was alive, but people hunted back then and they trapped and stuff. And I think she did a little bit of that as well. I don't know whether she hunted to you know, if she did catch and release, if she caught to kind of study animals, to study their behavior and stuff for her stories. So the author, Christian McKay Heidecker, definitely takes some liberties with that, but it makes for a good scary storytelling as well. So Kara, I think you have another title to share with. I do. My second book is Bridge to Terabithia by Katherine Patterson, which won the Newbery Medal in 1978. So we had two fairly new books and now we're going back quite a bit, but a book that's definitely still around and is still popular and still used in schools as far as I know. The basic story is about two friends and there's a tragedy that happens. So Jess Ahrens is the main character who's narrating the story. And Leslie Burke is the character who comes to town. She's new. She's really different. She beats all the boys at the races in the schoolyard. So none of them like her. But Jess actually ends up befriending her. She's his neighbor. So they're close by. And she has this idea to build this kingdom in the woods that she calls Terabithia, where they can rule their own little kingdom and not have to worry about school bullies or siblings or any of that. But then there's a tragedy that happens. And I'm going to say this is not a spoiler because this book has been around for so long. I guess if you haven't read it, it is. But Leslie ends up dying. So I personally love this story because I remember reading it in sixth grade. And I feel like it was the first book that I had a huge reaction to because I remember just sobbing when Leslie died. And I found it really relatable as a kid. I was surprised when I read it a couple years ago that I felt like it was more dated than I remembered. And it's interesting if you're a rereader, I don't reread too many books, but especially when I go back and reread my favorite books, which I will do occasionally, that you bring new life experiences to it. I feel like, you know, after the birth of each of my children, when I would go back to one of my favorite books, that's about a relationship and the couple that has a child, it's every time it was a little bit different, which is really interesting. So obviously our life experiences in our reading of a book. And I didn't get to read it fully before we did this recording, but I did kind of glance through it. And I feel like it felt a little different this time too. I didn't quite get through all of it, but I didn't feel like it was as dated I think what I was remembering that the first time that I read it as an adult was the music teacher is kind of a prominent character and she's considered to be a hippie by the rest of the community and they kind of shun her for that. So I think that was part of it. But as I was reading it this time, I really felt like Jess's voice stuck out. And I feel like that must be one of the distinguishing qualities that the committee decided on because he just has such a unique voice that really does feel authentic. 
So that part for sure, I feel like is distinguished. I would say that this book is her most popular out of all of her titles, which she has quite a few that are very well known, but it might be considered her most controversial. At one point, it was the third most challenged book in the country, and that's cited as being for its use of curse words. So it does have quite a few in the text. And when she was interviewed about it, she talked about how it's most often used in schools and it's kind of the most visible. So anytime a book is used a lot in a curriculum, but also as a Newbery Medal winner, that just ups its visibility considerably. So she thought that that was probably why it gets attacked so much. But she also said that she really thinks that it's not about the curse words. It's about a fear of death and a fear of talking to children about death. That's really what's behind all the uproar over it. So I haven't really heard of any challenges to it recently. I don't believe it made ALA's most recent list of books that were most challenged, but it definitely has been in the past. And interestingly enough, Catherine Patterson was also at the Newbery Banquet that I attended, accepting the 2013 Laura Ingalls Wilder Award, which is now known as the Children's Literature Legacy Award, for authors who have made a substantial and lasting contribution to children's literature. So along with this one, she also won the medal for Jacob Have I Loved in 1981. So she's part of that two medal winner club that you were talking about, Stacy, only one of six people who have ever done it. And then she also has one new great honor to her name for the great Gilly Hopkins in 1979. I can't remember if I mentioned this one was 1978. So she definitely deserves her many accolades. Yeah, I remember reading this one too, and it just destroyed me because going into it, especially like, I do believe I was assigned this in school. Going into it, your teacher doesn't really tell you what it's about, or at least mine didn't then. And then you get to the part where she dies and you're like, oh my God, you had no idea this was coming. Such a strong, like you said, such a strong reaction. Definitely one that I think probably ended up on the top eight titles, if you remember from our staff pick. Yeah, I think definitely, it's definitely one of those where so many people have a special place for it in their heart. Well, thank you, Kara, for sharing those. And I think, Stacy, you have another one, a unique one to share with us. I do. Yeah, I chose this one, I think, partially because it is so unique. And it is Frog and Toad Together by Arnold Lovell. And it was a 1973 Newbery honor, which if you can tell by the cover, it looks like a very 70s cover with the muted color palette, that kind of burnt orange color that showed up everywhere, I think in the 70s, like on carpets and furniture and everything (laughs) and artwork. I did choose this one because it's just nostalgic for sure, but also because I don't want to say this for sure, but I think it might be one of the only easy reader type of books that have won. Maybe it's the only one that has won a Newbery honor or medal. So this was an honor winner, not the medal. So if you're in the library, you'll find it in our beginning reader section, which is an introduction in between easy picture books and juvenile chapter books. So they're much smaller. They have short chapters and this is one of the I can read books. So it is ideal for sharing with emergent readers, but I think adults love Frog and Toad just as much as kids do who have never read it before. In these stories, there are four stories and Frog and Toad, of course, are best friends. They do everything together. When Toad admires flowers in Frog's garden, Frog gives him seeds to grow a garden of his own. 
when Toad bakes cookies, Frog helps him eat them. And when Frog and Toad are scared, they're brave together. So everyday situations that everybody can relate to, but it's fanciful because it's Frog and Toad and they're dressed so snazzily here on a double-seater bicycle, which just adds to the charm, I think, of Frog and Toad. So I just wanted to read this little bit. School Library Journal, which is one of the professional publications that we as librarians refer to all the time to learn about the best title for children. They called this story collection a masterpiece of child-styled humor and sensitivity. And when I looked at it on Goodreads, it has a 4.21 average star rating out of five stars with over 42,000 ratings, which I think is amazing. I'll read you my favorite piece, which I have marked here. And it is from the Story Cookies. So here's our little spread here. It's so sweet. Look at them sitting, just enjoying cookies as we all love to do. I'll read. It says, Frog and Toad ate many cookies, one after another. You know, Toad, said Frog with his mouth full. I think we should stop eating. We will soon be sick. And they go back and forth and say, yes, you are right. We should stop eating, but let's eat one more. And then Frog and Toad eats another one. And they're like, we should stop eating. And let's have one very last one. The best part is, to me, it says, we must stop eating, cried Toad as he ate another. I just think that was the epitome of both childhood and adulthood, like just having the willpower to say no to one more cookie. And I think that actually turned into a meme that I saw surface during 2020. And it just like captured people's mindset very well during that time where there wasn't a lot to do and you just didn't have willpower to say no to one more cookie. Just the like I was saying, the very 70s vibe and the nostalgia invite adults to read it again and again. And it just, I think, has an endless appeal for new generations. So I definitely wanted to highlight this. Kind of an unconventional pick, but just one of my favorites. So Frog and Toad together. That's one of my favorites, too. I'm glad you picked that one. Cookies is my favorite story out of that one. (laughs) Um, And there's another volume that has a story about ice cream that I've used a lot in story time. But I definitely think they're relatable, like you were talking about with trying to have the willpower not to eat cookies. I think... Most people are either a frog or a toad. I'm definitely a toad. He's a list maker. He's a worrier. That's me. For sure. They're very relatable and I just find them so charming and just adorable illustrations. So one of my favorites. Well, thank you for sharing that, Stacy. Yeah. I have one more title for us and this is probably one of my favorite juvenile books that I've ever read and it is The War That Saved My Life by Kimberly Brubaker Bradley. And this is only an honor book. And I have to say, I'm a little disappointed by that. This won the honor, I believe in 2016, and was beat out by a picture book. The picture book is great, but I'm just a little bit disappointed that the picture book squeaked by this one. I'm not sure how or why, because I think it's a fabulous, fabulous book. Very well written, distinguished in so many areas. So this follows Ada, who was born with a club foot, so she can't walk. And her mom is really embarrassed by her. Therefore, she does not let her leave their apartment ever, not even to go to school. 
So in 10 years, eight is 10, in her 10 years, she's never been outside. Her only knowledge of the outside world is what she can see from her window. And then World War II happens. She lives in London in the city, which is very unsafe with all the bombings. So families start sending their children out to the countryside where it's safer. Ada's little brother, Jamie, is supposed to be sent, but Ada's mom doesn't think Ada needs to go. So she is not planning to send Ada. Well, Ada decides that she is going to. So she sneaks out with her brother in the night to go to the train and with her brother's help and some help from others, she makes. And so they go to the countryside as they're going. There are so many things that she's never seen or even imagined, like the grass and seeing ponies and having enough to eat. These are all brand new experiences for her. And then she meets a woman named Susan who takes in her and her brother. Even though Susan doesn't want these two kids from London coming to live with them, she still takes them in. And it's just a really heartwarming story to see how, even though she didn't want to take these two kids and these two kids leave an impression on her and she on them. She gets Ada her first pair of crutches. She teaches her to read. It's just a really heartwarming story where we see a lot of growth and transformation in the characters. The setting is beautiful. It's a really unique plot. Historic fiction, so it's set during World War II, but that's not the main part of the story. It's the relationship between the characters. It's the transformation of the characters. I think the author did a great job of looking at how a 10-year-old girl would feel and react in the situation that she's been placed in. I would highly recommend this book. I think adults as well as kids would enjoy it. And like I said, I'm a little bit salty that it did not win the Newbery Award, that it just got the honor. It was definitely deserving. So that is the title I wanted to share with you today. I agree. I love that one too. I can see where you're upset about (laughs) not winning the medal. It was definitely one of my favorites that year to win the medal. And it stuck with me still after all this time, which the honors don't tend to, you know, when you're talking about within the past couple of years, thinking about all the ones that you're looking at for the, the Newbery Medal or honor. I think, you know, historically, as we've talked about, some of the honors really stick out more than the winners. But yeah, that one's definitely stuck with me. I think it's because of the juxtaposition of her horrible, abusive life that she she had beforehand and then the love and the comfort that she experiences with her new caregiver when she makes it out into the countryside it's just totally different and she's just experiencing life in a different way and I think that yeah that really stuck with that's not one I read but I just think like with any award doesn't matter if it's a book award or the Academy Award or whatever, it's all subjective. So it's a winner in your heart. So you can always recommend that title to others. And like you said, the picture book that did win that year was wonderful and definitely deserving of all the other accolades it received. But yeah, in your heart, that it's title gold. could be the it winner. Has gold or bronze in my heart. Yeah. All right. Well, I thank everybody, Kara and Stacy, for joining me for our Newberry podcast today. As we've mentioned, be sure to tune in to our Facebook page to vote for your favorite Newberry. Make sure you keep an eye out for that. And as always, we will be anxiously awaiting for the announcement of the Newberry Award for 2022. You can watch that. It will appear live virtually on January 24th, 2022 at 8 a.m. 
A live video stream will be available at ala.unikron.com. Thank you for joining us. Listeners, remember to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Viewers, follow the Claremont Library YouTube channel for this and other great library content. You can find all of the books we talked about in our catalog or in our digital collection via Libby, Hoopla, or Freebie. Thank you.